Hi, this is David Flower, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Good morning, Grantham Church. Great to see all of you, to see your faces this morning in worship, and thanks for joining us online. If you're watching the live stream, my name is David Flowers. I'm senior pastor here at Grantham. And uh, Dave, Pastor Dave and worship team, thank you for leading us in worship this morning, and Pastor Melissa for your prayer. I hope that uh, you all have already received a blessing from being here. And now we are going to open up the scriptures together and uh, lean in and listen for what the Lord would have to say to us this morning. Last week's message, uh, if you were with us or you watched the live stream or listened to the podcast, was called Jesus and the Selfless Life. And so we talked a little bit about how in American culture, there is this hyper-individualism that I said threatens New Testament church life. Do you remember me saying that? I want to expound on that this morning and talk a little bit about the church and about community. I said hyper-individualism is one of the greatest threats to the New Testament church life. And why is that exactly? I do want to be clear and say that the individual matters. This is one of the unique contributions of the Christian faith to the world, is that we say that we were created in God's image and that all of us have inherent dignity, value, and worth. The individual matters. As opposed to a collectivist society, and you think the extremes, like a socialist or communist society, that doesn't see the individual, doesn't value the individual as much as the group, right? You think about Jesus' own collective society. They thought that by crucifying Jesus, by killing one person, they could save everybody. And of course, God doesn't agree with that thinking, but does enter into it and undoes it. Think of it that way. So the individual matters. But listen to what Stanley Grins, a theologian, once said. He said, God's purpose is the salvation of individuals. That's true. Grins continues. He says, but God saves us together, not in isolation. And he saves us for community, not out of it. Amen? And that community is Christ and his church. So what is the purpose of the church? That's what I want us to look at this morning in a message I'm entitled, Created for Community. Father, we open up our hearts and our minds to you this morning. Lord, I'm quite aware that nothing that I say, especially out of my flesh, can do any good. And so, Lord, we also know that (laughs) there's nothing that we can do in our own strength in the hearing of this word that would change us for the better. We need your Holy Spirit. And so we invite your Holy Spirit now I invite you, Lord, to fill me and empower me. Give me your words that would minister to our souls and empower us, Lord, to be your people. 
And all of God's people said, amen. Disruption. Disruption is a word that I think accurately describes our current state of affairs. Would you agree? And you could probably think of a lot of other words, and some of them might not be appropriate to put up on the screen, but disruption would certainly be one of them. A recent Gallup poll indicated that religious membership in the U.S. has fallen to 47%. Think about that. At Christianity in America, maybe we should specify, specifically white evangelicalism is in decline. And as was predicted, the pandemic has accelerated our post-Christian society and culture. And it was only a couple decades ago that uh, things looked much different across the American landscape, especially as far as church attendance goes and church programs and ministries and and the world looks a lot different. And as I said, the, the pandemic has accelerated it. And I've said this a couple times already that folks were predicting that once we get on the other side of the pandemic, that 20% of your church isn't going to come back. You know, I mean, people realize that they were already sort of nominal Christians and they don't really need the church. They can live their life without it. And, and I think that we are seeing some of that. And I also think there's some other reasons for church decline, or, yeah, for decline in church attendance in America. You, you may resonate with some of these. They may make sense to you and connect with you. Increasing secularization, anti-institutionalism. So we, don't dis, we, we just distrust institutions. We don't trust them anymore. Competing idols and liturgies from sports, hobbies. We're driven by the civic calendar more than we are the church calendar, which is why we try to live into the church calendar here at Grantham. Our crazy, busy, fast-paced lives, we find we have less and less time to give to the church. Partisan politics, identity politics, maybe we should specify that one, and political polarization, that's part of it. And so a lot of people are just tired of seeing that in the church. They don't, they don't want more of that when they go to church, or they're just picking sides. That church is not right enough for me. That church is not left enough for me. And so they, they move around and find a place that looks more like them and thinks more like them. Moral failures of high-profile church leaders, that has certainly impacted uh, church participation and attendance. Cynicism, lack of trust, a suspicion of others. Consumerism. Consumerism. Of course, we see it in the culture, but we also see it in the church. We, people want the church to meet their, their needs, but not just their needs, all of their wants, and the church doesn't live up to their expectations, and so they say, just forget it. Also, the church's failure to, I think, properly orient us to God and to make disciples could be some of the reason why we are seeing so many people say, I don't need the church. And then, of course, lastly, American individualism. We retreat into self-absorption, isolation, and disconnection. I said last week the selfie life is having a very destructive effect on all of us. And this doesn't just make being and doing church impossible because it requires people in continual relationship, ministry, and, and doing service together but it's also harmful to our souls. And why is that? 
Well, it's because we were created for community. And to be even more specific, we were created for community by a communal God. Think about this. Take a look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Now, Old Testament scholars will say that the us uh, in the, if you're, if you're, you know, in the ancient world and you're reading the Hebrew scriptures, they had no understanding of the Trinity. And so the us is reflective of the heavenly court, right? Because the main lesson they're trying to learn in the Old Testament is that there's one God, one true and living God, uh, monotheism. So they, they haven't yet uh, understood this idea of Trinity. But when we read the Old Testament through New Testament lens, we do see that. And we believe that because Jesus revealed that to us. Uh, he prayed to the Father. He referred to himself as the Son sent by the Father, who will then later give us the Holy Spirit, which is the same Ruach, right, that hovered over the waters in creation. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We, we sang about the, the Godhead this morning, the three in one. And so from all eternity, look at this. There was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We didn't always know that, but we know that now because Jesus has revealed that to us, that within God himself is a plurality. It's mysterious, but it is true. There is a plurality that within God himself there is community. Now, all of the analogies that we've tried to use for the Trinity, they all fall short, and some of them dangerously lead us into heresy. <laughs> Right? Uh, that God is just one who puts on three different masks, uh, or that God simply just reveals himself in three different ways, what we call modalism. Lots of heresies that we can, we can fall into. But I think the best way to understand this, this plurality and this community of God, is to think of God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit as there being a, a lover, and the one who's loved, the beloved, and the love that is shared between them. It, look at this. If God is love, there has to be a lover, the beloved, and the love that they share between them. For a being to, to actually be love, not just that they love, but to be love, there has to be a plurality and a community within, within himself, within the Godhead. Therefore, think about it. We were created by a communal God to know Him and to live in harmonious community with others. Let us make God in, or let us make man in our image. This means that we can't be fully functional, healthy human beings simply as an individual. Right? This is why hyper individualism leads us to very bad places. We need to be connected to other human beings in community. That is how God made us, right? The communal God put it within us to commune with others. That's what he meant when the American novelist and theologian and preacher Frederick Buechner said these words. You can survive on your own, you can grow strong on your own, in a sense. You can prevail on your own. But you cannot become human on your own. That happens in community. And innately, we know this, if we're honest with ourselves. And so since the Tower of Babel 
human beings have naturally sought to group themselves together to create a common sense of identity, purpose, belonging, protection, an ethical code or law like right and wrong, how to live, uh, religious or spiritual beliefs about mystery, about the transcendent, and then a way of understanding ourselves and the collective group based on the past, present, and expectations regarding the future. Think about that, the Tower of Babel. You've probably seen some pictures. I don't have one up here for you this morning, but you think about the Tower of Babel and everyone gathering together with, an, uh, with a common identity, purpose, uh, meaning in life. Of course, what we're told in the Bible is that was against God, that, that they were all gathering around something other than the Lord himself. And we still do this today. I want you to think about this, all right? I'm not going to pick on any groups but I may have to name some of them so you get the idea, all right? Just consider all the ways we see this happening in a fallen world, way we, we, where we group ourselves together in community and often getting life apart from God. The world's idea of community looks like this. It looks like tribalism. That is just sticking to our own, sticking to our own groups, our own people that are like-minded, that agree with us on whatever. It looks like nationalism, which says that our country is better than yours. And it even goes further and says we have a divine right to rule over others. You know, in our country, it was manifest destiny, right? We have a divine right to rule and to drive out the Canaanites, which were the Native Americans at that time. So this is very dangerous. That's not good. But this is the world's idea of community because we all long for it, but unfortunately we express it in some very unhealthy, destructive ways. How about race and ethnicities? Now certainly race is a good thing. I mean, different ethnicities and cultures are a good thing. But we just want to group ourselves according to the color of our skin or our place of origin and compare ourselves to others. That's not good. As I said, customs and cultures, the way we do things, this is right, and the people that don't do things the way that we do things are wrong, and we get our life from that. We see this in churches, don't, don't we, where churches are homogenous, where we're, we're all white and we all like the organ. You see what I mean? If you're honest with yourself, we, we all do this. And so we want, to, we want to just gravitate toward these things that are not very healthy and it's not what God's called us to and ultimately don't give us life. And of course, we'll deteriorate your church. <laughs> and then there's the social and economic status. We, we group ourselves according to financial category. We say these, these people are better than these people because they have more money or whatever. Affinities. Our common bond, you know, we all like Star Wars in here, you know. It's like we're going to create a church that just likes Star Wars. So this is, you know, I think that it could be a good approach to evangelism to start affinity groups like that. Like maybe some of you have been to a cowboy church, right? But that's just the beginning, folks. That can't be where we end with a group that all look alike and sound alike and like the same things. This is not God's idea of community. And ultimately, it's idolatry. Think about it. All of these, in some sense, replace God as the thing that brings us together and gives us life, and it circumvents His design. So we have the great rescue. 
we have a God who comes into a Tower of Babel world where people have grouped themselves according to tribalism and nationalism and, and race and ethnicity and whatever, and God says, I'm going to call a people out so that I can redeem the world through them. And ultimately, you know, Israel falls into all of these traps and, and isn't all that God wants Israel to be in welcoming the nations to break down all these walls and these barriers because all of the earth belongs to the Lord and he's calling all people to himself. Do you see? Are you getting this picture? This was the great rescue. The story of Israel and the Trinitarian's God to redeem the world and to create community around the communal God. And so then Jesus comes. He, Jesus steps in. He does what Israel can't do. He's the true Israelite. Uh, he does away with the old. He brings us the new. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, God is forming this kind of community in the world. But still, and we've all experienced it, maybe at this church, maybe in other churches, and we can certainly see it across the landscape of American Christianity today, where we're fighting against this purpose, <laughs> that, that we're resisting this grand vision that God has for the world. And so Jesus doesn't just offer us individual salvation. This is where, he, in many ways, evangel evangelicalism has gone wrong. This is one of the ways that Jesus is just, you know, just say this prayer so you can die and go to heaven. It's just, it's very individualistic gospel. But it's much bigger than this. And so Christ invites us into relationship with this communal God and with his people. Because it's through his people that he's, he's decided to change the world. Now that's not my idea. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, even as your senior pastor, I wait, a lot of days I wake up and say, this doesn't seem like a great idea, Lord. <laughs> you know, uh, you're counting on, on your people to do this, to carry this out. But Jesus said, it wasn't me, Jesus said it. The church, like himself, is the light of the world, is salt in the earth. This is the way that God has chosen. Who are we to buck the divine program? This is why, and I totally get it, that folks end up in cynicism. They get burned by the church. Uh, they get hurt with, you know, it, with something that's happened in the church. And they want to point fingers. They want to blame. They, they, they want to just abandon the church. But if I could invite you this morning to be intentional about healing, right? God is looking for redeemed, cynic saints. Because it's those people who can truly make a difference. But don't abandon, we can't abandon, the divine program. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus said, I will build my church. This is Peter's great confession. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you've, you've spoken these words. They are true. You've spoken them through the power of the Holy Spirit. It was revealed to you by God that this is true. And Jesus said, and I will build my church. The word there in Greek is ekklesia. And it literally means called out ones. Actually, this was a common word. It was used in the Greco-Roman world to describe any kind of gathering. Often it was a civic group of people that came together in a community or a town or a village or whatever to represent the interest and to deal, do with the business and deal with the business of that particular community. But Jesus says, I have an ecclesia. I have a gathering. We see this word used 114 times in the New Testament to refer to the assembly or the gathering of God's people. In the Septuagint, uh, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This is the word that's used to describe the people of God. 
So Jesus says, I'm going to build my ecclesia. I'm going to build my church of called out ones. And the scripture tells us that this was God's eternal purpose. Not like, oh, plan B. This is God's eternal purpose. His plan from the beginning. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 through 11. He said, God's purpose in all of this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Think about that, the rich variety. This was his eternal plan and purpose, which he carried out through Jesus Christ our Lord. Don't miss this, folks. God calls out his people, his family, to be united in one common faith through one baptism and in worship of one Lord, setting aside all other loyalties and allegiances to accept the identity, the purpose, and the way of living that Jesus gives to all who chooses to follow him through the local church. And this is how God chose and still chooses to change the world. If we could really grasp this vision it would change us. It would change us as individuals, and it would empower us to get busy with the work of the gospel through the local church. And instead of pointing the distance from afar, and I'm not one of them, we would engage and help change the church. Of course, there is the universal, or what we say in the Apostles' Creed, the Holy Catholic Church, little c. That simply just means the universal church, the church all over the world, all across the planet. But the New Testament shows us that God's eternal purpose, His grand vision for the church is to be lived out locally. The church is made up of churches, right? The church big C is made up of little churches in every place where people gather in community to live, work, shop, and play. These churches are like uh, kingdom embassies. You can think of it that way. If we were in a foreign land, we have an embassy. Uh, The little churches are like embassies or outposts spread out in every place that human beings gather on the earth. And we are to be a witness on behalf of Christ and the gospel, showing a watching world that Jesus changes everything. And based on our knowledge of the New Testament and of archaeology and Roman history, an early house church would likely have looked something like this. Just to help us to get the picture, think about this. If we had, let's say, an uh, early house church in Rome, scholars say it would have looked something like this. They would have met in a larger house or to house all of those people. Now, you do have examples of like Lydia and Philippi who was meeting uh, by the river. And people were gathered there because they didn't have a place large enough to meet. Uh, or somebody who, had, who, who was a Christian who wanted to follow Jesus and had a large house. But let's say um, Priscilla and Aquila, they lived in Rome. They were helping the church in Rome. They would have had a large house. Those house churches could have ranged from a dozen or so people, probably 30 at max, scholars say. There would have been men and women worshiping together. There would have been Roman citizens and non-citizens, so people who had rights and people who didn't have rights. There would have been single people, married people, divorced people, widows. There would have been Jews and Gentiles. Now, now think about that. That means that there were all kinds of political, religious, 
and moral backgrounds coming to the table. Views ranging from, well, that's weird, to just scandalous and offensive. Now, that's not really that different than the ones Jesus chose to follow him, the 12. Anybody watching The Chosen? Think about the group of people that Jesus called to the table. And the radical differences that exist among them. Fishermen, tax collectors, zealots. These folks would have wanted to kill each other. But Jesus saying, put all that aside and follow me. Now, where else do you see that happening in the world? Where else is that happening? The world doesn't function that way. The world doesn't group itself that way. So are you starting to see the wisdom and the power in what God is trying to do here? So folks are coming from various ethnicities, different customs and traditions, freed slaves, slaves who had no legal rights, folks from elite classes down to the poor and the homeless. All of these folks were represented. Church, I hope that you're beginning to grasp God's grand vision and eternal purpose for the church in the world. This is so important. If we're going to follow Christ, if we're going to be the church that God wants Grantham Church to be, we have to understand we don't want everybody agreeing politically. I, you know, I am trying the best I can, and the rest of our leadership is to keep everybody at the table because this is part of God's grand vision, His eternal purpose. This is so important. Listen to what New Testament scholar in, uh, Scott McKnight writes. I'm so used to quoting N.T. Wright almost, N.T. Wright. Scott McKnight writes this in his book, A Fellowship of Difference. He says, getting the church right is so important. The church is God's world-changing social experiment of bringing unlikes and different to the table to share life with one another as a new kind of family. When this happens, we show the world what love, justice, peace, reconciliation, and life together are designed by God to be. The church is God's show and tell for the world to see how God wants us to live as a family. Isn't that beautiful? I hope you're getting this eternal purpose this morning. I hope you're getting this vision. You see, the truth is, until we come to Christ and enter into the life of the church, we are, from a biblical perspective, homeless. Think about it. Oh, you may have a nice house. You may have family and friends. You may take comfort in the nation you were born into, the color of your skin, your culture, your social status. You may find meaning and purpose to any number of groupings the world has to offer. But the Scripture says that you're really homeless and not a part of God's divine program of bringing heaven to earth. Not until you've joined the ecclesia of God and committed to sharing life together with other disciples who are seeking to strategically impact their community and the lost around them with the gospel of Christ. The early Christians of all people understood that to receive Christ and join his church was like coming home. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. This is going to be really good news for some folks here this morning. You're no longer wandering exiles. This kingdom of faith is now your home country. You're no longer strangers or outsiders, 
you belong here with as much right to the name Christian as anyone. God is building a home. He's using us all, irrespective of how we got here, in what He is building. Folks, we are suffering in our society, in our culture, from an identity crisis. An identity crisis. And so whether it's Republicans or Democrats, whether it is LGBTQ community or the black community or whatever community. Listen, God is calling a people to himself because it's only in this group, the ecclesia of God, that we will truly find life because God is the source of life. If you want to know your identity, if you want to know meaning and purpose and where things are going in the world for the future, it is found in the community of God. Paul goes on, he says, he used the apostles and prophets for the foundation. Now he's using you, fitting you in brick by brick, stone by stone with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone that holds all the parts together. Jesus is the foundation. Now look at that. He uses a stonemason metaphor here. He said, we see it taking shape day after day, a holy temple built by God, all of us built into it, a temple in which God is quite at home. So get this imagery, a stonemason imagery. It's, it's, we get this picture. Paul is painting this picture of Jesus as a stonemason, and each and every one of us is a stone, and he takes out his hammer, and he's chiseling away at that stone to fit it into the building. Now, this has meaning for the larger family of God throughout the world, of course, what God is doing with the church throughout the world. But think about it as the local church. And why it's so important that you show up, that you are engaged, that you are participating in what God is doing and trying to put all of the giftings together, the shaping of the stones together, so we can each do our part, as Paul would say in Ephesians 4, and carry out the mission of God to our community. It is a beautiful, beautiful metaphor, a beautiful picture. Christ chiseling us to fit us into the church, to form His building. And we need to see the larger view, but we also need to see this local view, this metaphor as it applies to us here at Grantham. The Apostle Paul, or rather Peter, used similar language when he wrote this. He said this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. As you come to him, the living stone, that being Jesus, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Those gifts are not for yourself. Those gifts are for the church. Your energies, your resources aren't for yourself. They're for the church and for carrying out the mission of God in our community. Amen? How are we being built into a spiritual house? Through relationships and through community. This isn't something that you can do by regularly attending church online from the couch at home. It's great that we have this technology. And I'd even push back on some church leaders today. He says, the church needs to innovate, you know? So we're, we're, and I like Simon Sinek, but listen to, to someone like Simon Sinek, as far as I know, he's not, not a believer. I don't know, maybe he is. But saying, you know, the church needs to innovate like Apple innovates or whatever. Like, in some ways, yes. 
In other ways, no, because nothing, no, no amount of technology, no amount of live streaming can ever supplant the incarnational church of Christ and being together and sharing life together and growing together. Amen? This is how we become a spiritual house. This is one cultural trend that we mustn't succumb to at Grantham Church. For the body of Christ to be what the Lord desires, we must remain committed to embodied worship, embodied fellowship, and discipleship. We must practice incarnational ministry. Because anything else just really feeds into what is already a pariah on our culture of self-isolation, of hyper-individualism, of being disconnected. Think about this. Real Christian community isn't even possible without us being in close proximity to each other and committed to walking with other disciples as we follow Christ together. We can see this clearly in the one another's of the New Testament. Check this out. The one another's. We have lots of different one another's in the New Testament. Encourage one another, live in peace with one another, show hospitality to one another, teach one another, love one another, live in harmony with one another, be devoted to one another, honor one another, pray for one another, do not judge one another, be truthful to one another, keep loving one another, be humble to one another, care for one another. Are you getting a picture? Do good for one another, forgive one another, confess your sins to one another. The phrase one another occurs 100 times in the New Testament. 59 of those are commands of how or how not to relate to others in close community. You can't even live out the church in New Testament fashion without being in close proximity to one another. So what does this look like practically? How do we do this at Grantham Church? I've invited us to think of engaging with the church to grow and serve in community through the spaces, through the spaces. Uh, this is so critical that we get this. And to me, and for me, in my journey, it was so freeing to know this. Many of you know my story. Um, I grew up uh, in the Southern Baptist Church and served there for about seven years as a minister to students and a minister of education. And toward the end of my time there, uh, there were lots of things going on. My, my beliefs were changing. I was just evolving in my faith. And I was becoming Anabaptist and just didn't know it. But what I also noticed was many people just thought the church was the public space. So we had a truncated gospel, say this prayer, saying die and go to heaven, which was disconnected from reality and from doing justice and so forth and so on. But it, but it was also just about showing up at 9 o'clock, 10.30, whatever the time was on Sunday morning, and that was church. And so there was a time there where, you know, I had the pendulum often swings in your journey. I went from being full-on working for the institution to thinking the institutional was of the devil and it's all Constantinian and we all just need to get back to house churches. And then what I discovered was an underground movement of folks in the house, of the house church movement who were just cynical, bitter, jaded, and disillusioned with the organized church. I'm like, well, I don't want that. Like, I love the church. I, I want, I believe it's God's vehicle of change to the world. It's his, it's his eternal purpose. And so eventually, we found our ways back into the organized church. But one of the things I learned was the power of the personal space. And this is why the early church, some of the reasons why the early church did this. Also because they didn't have church buildings and they couldn't gather in large public spaces. 
So I saw the deep value in that. And of course, as well as the intimate space. And I, I remember my wife and I, we actually, in doing house church for about five years or so, we missed the public space. And we also missed the kind of ministry that could happen when larger groups of people get together and collaborate. So, you know, what we realized, and this space's image helped me in, to free me and to actually be able to serve in this way again, was to say, no, it's all of these spaces. We need to work all of these spaces. We've got to work the public. We've got to work the social, the personal, and the intimate spaces. Because Jesus did. And sociologically, it makes sense. This is how we were created. We're human beings. We need community. What I discovered in house churches was this. We need these spaces. To work the spaces so that we can be equipped, refueled, and then sent into the world to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. We gather and we go. We gather and we go. I'll talk more about that next week. Why is American individualism a threat? It's because our culture's influence on you and me has led us to believe that you don't need any of this to follow Jesus. And folks, it's very American. But it's not very biblical. It's just Jesus and you. I don't need Christian community. Folks, this is a dangerous lie, and it will lead to some destructive consequences for you, your children, and our congregation if you believe it. So we must resist the internal and the external forces that tell us otherwise. Amen. That's why I like to use another graphic to help us live into a healthy spirituality and a healthy Christianity. So uh, this hyper-individualist would just say, it's just about me and God. It's just about the up. But we're saying, no, it's not just about the up. It's not just about your relationship with God. It's also about the in. It's also about being in close proximity with folks so that you can confess your sins with one another, so that you can love one another and bear each other's burdens, so that you can offer hospitality to one another and all the other one another's. We need to do the in, not just the up, but the in and also the out. Gather and go. We're, we're, we're gathering so that we can be sent out into the world to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. And I'll be talking more about the in and the out uh, over the next couple of weeks. So when we understand God's eternal purpose and we seriously consider the wisdom and the power of the Christian church, how it shapes disciples and prepares us for mission, then I think we can better understand what the author of Hebrews had in mind when he wrote these words. And they're not meant to guilt and they're not meant to shame as often they've probably this passage has been used. But if you get the whole eternal purpose and you get this vision that God is calling us to live into, this really makes sense. I mean, this is to spur us. You know, I know that's, that sounds awful, to wear spurs and to kick a horse like that, you know, but that is the imagery. That's one of the metaphors that's used to spur us and to kick us into gear. The author of Hebrews says, let us hold strong to the confession of our hope, the gospel, never wavering, since the one, Jesus, who promised it is faithful. Let us consider how to inspire each other, to spur one another to greater love and to righteous deeds, not forgetting to gather as a community, as some have forgotten, but encouraging each other, especially as the day of his return approaches. Do not forget to gather. 
inspire one another to greater love and to righteous deeds so that we can be the body of Christ. Finally, I want to invite us to reflect on what we've heard this morning. What, what is the Spirit saying to you, and how might the Lord be calling us to respond? Here's some questions to help us to do that. Let's reflect on this together. Number one, do you agree with the Scriptures that you were created for community, not hyper-individualism or isolation? And if so, are you moving toward one anothering or away from it? Let's think about that for just a moment. Number two, now that we're coming out of the pandemic, how is God calling you to re-engage with the spaces of the church? And lastly, number three, since participation in the local church is God's way of changing us and the world around us, how might you need to direct or redirect your time, talents, and treasure to support the mission and the vision of Grantham Church moving forward. I'll be honest with you. There, there, there are some days where that I'm like, you know, do folks understand what we're trying to do here? To be intergenerational. To be convergent, holding together the ancient and the modern. I mean, for crying out loud, we, we've got like electric guitar and drums and the organ at the same time. Trying to hold us together, the generations together, the different political views together. So we seek to be a third-way church, right? That we want to address injustice as Jesus would want us to do, but without mixing it with partisan politics and identity politics. Do you see that's a unique vision? That's a unique mission. And we say we want to lead others to the God who looks like Jesus because, folks, some churches preach a God whose portrait doesn't look like that. This is unique. Do people see that vision? Do you see that vision? What we could do, what we could be together if we say we want to be a different sort of church. And I just stop with us. We don't want to be insular. We don't want to just think about us and our programs and our ministries, but we want to think about how can we be equipped? How can we gather to be equipped so we can go out into our community and make a difference? So that when people talk about Grantham Church, they talk about a people who looks like the God who looks like Jesus. That is my heart for us. And if you share that mission and vision, would you get in the game? Would you engage with the church so that we can engage our community? Father, we thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your patience with us. And for all that you do to provide healing and restoration, healing from our bitterness and our unforgiveness, our hurt and our pain and our disillusionment with the church. Lord, we, we need your help. We are broken, sinful, 
we have a distorted view of ourselves, and, and then we've got forces in the culture that shape us and drive us away from your mission and your vision and your eternal purpose in the church. But I pray, Holy Spirit, this morning that you would give us clarity on this and that you would empower us to do what needs to be done to prioritize you and the church over all the competing forces, idols, allegiances, and liturgies so that we can be the difference that our community needs to see in the church. We want to be the light of the world. We want to be the salt of the earth. And Holy Spirit, we don't want you to pass Grantham Church by. And so come, Holy Spirit, rest on us. Christ, be our firm foundation and build your kingdom here. Make us into a spiritual house, a shining beacon for the world that others might have hope, that others might be forgiven, that others might know your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.